Welcome to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable Podcast. I'm Jason Moore, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Marilyn Ritchie. We are coming to you live on tape from the Institute for Biomedical Informatics Idea Factory at Penn Medicine, which is part of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. The goal of this podcast is to discuss important and fun topics in biomedical informatics in a casual manner. We will use a roundtable discussion format covering hot topics, news, published papers, advice for trainees, conferences, and other items of interest to the biomedical informatics community. We will invite guests to join us in person or by phone and plan to do some interviews with leaders in the field. Our goal is to produce at least one episode per month as our schedules allow. Marilyn and I plan to take turns as host leading the discussions. I am Jason Moore, and it's great to be back to host episode 10, our 11th episode of the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast. We are coming to you live on tape from the metaverse due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sitting next to me virtually is co-host Marilyn Ritchie, and behind the scenes is our talented sound engineer, Michael Stauffer. And we are excited to be back after a short break from recording. Marilyn, what have you been up to since our last recording? Well, I agree, Jason. It is great to be back. Um, Since our last recording, I've been pretty busy. Uh, The first bit of news that I want to share is that I was selected as a new fellow of ACME, the American College of Medical Informatics. So I will be inducted at a virtual gala on November 15th, which I have to say will be my first gala to attend virtually. I've been polling my Facebook and Twitter friends to find out what does one wear to a virtual gala. I'm getting a lot of responses like a, a sparkly sequins top and pajama bottoms or you know a business top and sweatpants. So uh, we'll see what we come up with. Um, but I'm really honored and, and excited about that and looking forward to uh, a nice bottle of wine with my husband to celebrate that evening kind of during and after the gala. Yeah, congratulations. That's a really, really big honor. Thank you. Yeah. So excited. I'm disappointed that the gala can't be in person because I love getting dressed up and wearing a gown and fancy shoes. And like, I really love all that kind of pomp and circumstance, but um, I'll just have to wait for hopefully the gala will be in person in 2021 or 2022. And now that I'm a member, I'll get to go. uh, Well, actually, I guess anyone from Amy, I could go to the gala. Um, I just have never had a reason to before, but now I do. Um, So I'm really excited about that. Other things that I've been up to most recently, I've been really busy getting two PhD students ready to defend. I have two students graduating this semester. And so uh, we're wrapping up their dissertations. One has to be done this week and to her committee and the other one has to be done next week and to the committee. So I'm doing a lot of back and forth in editing and trying to remember which chapter is going which with, with which thesis. And um, I've been you know, doing practice job talks for them. And I think both have solidified their, uh, their next positions, which is really exciting, but it, it's been a busy time. And, and it's always bittersweet. You know, it, it's supposed to happen, but it's also really sad when these members of your group who've been with you for years uh, go. And, and I'm especially sad because it's two of them leaving at the same time. So uh, it, it, it's a wonderful thing, but I'm definitely going to miss them both. Um, I've been giving several virtual talks at um, different small conferences. So there was one 
uh, precision medicine conference at Georgetown. It was really great. Um, it was led by Subha Madhavan and the speakers were fabulous. Shrag Patel and Jim Semino and Rob Califf. It was just a really great uh, conference. And uh, I've also given a few seminars for different universities. I'm getting used to the virtual talk. You know, at first I really didn't like it because I tend to feed off of the audience, kind of trying to gauge, are they listening? Do they understand? Are, there, are they nodding or are they sleeping or are they scrunching their faces in confusion? And it's hard on a virtual talk. You can't see anyone except a tiny thumbnail of yourself. And, uh, but I'm getting used to it. I, it. It's not my favorite. I really do look forward to speaking to audiences live again, but, but it's not so jarring anymore. I'm just kind of getting used to talking to myself or what feels like you're talking to yourself. Um, I have been also planning for a retreat panel. So our graduate program is having a retreat in December and I'm on the planning committee. I'm planning a panel on wellness and productivity during COVID, which is a really important topic, especially for the students. We're, we're getting a big sense that there's a lot of um, burnout and kind of fatigue from the, the stress of the pandemic. And so I think this will be an important session. I'm trying to figure out kind of how to do it well so that it's not just you know, head down, focus more, do some yoga, because I don't think anybody needs to hear that. I think we need some real tactical and strategic things that people can do to stay productive um, and, and to stay well, because this is a challenging time and it, it's not going to get less challenging probably until at least the spring. Uh, I think with the winter coming, it's going to be a bit more hunkering down than even what we've had in the summer. Uh, and Another thing is uh, I'm taking over as the chair of our uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion committee for our graduate program. Um, I was on the committee, but the committee member who was uh, chairing the committee is actually leaving Penn. That's something we'll talk about later. And so I'm going to take over as chair for that committee. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I think it's really important that we change the culture. And I'd love to see this not just be lip service that we just say, you know, we're doing some things and post it on a website. I I'd like to see real change. And so that's why, while it was the last thing I needed was to add another thing on my to-do list, it, it was a really important one. And so I'll let some other things go so that I can do this. Um, and the last thing I'd say is I've been Zooming. I've been on Zoom calls and we were actually just chatting about this before we started. And, and so Jason, I bet you'll say something similar. Just Zoom fatigue is setting in. There are calls nonstop at least five days a week, although I've had some requests for some even on the weekends. And man, there's just so many meetings. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to a meeting-free week next week because my brain and my eyes need a break from Zoom. So we're going to take five days off of looking at Zoom and, uh, and see if I can kind of be reinvigorated to get back onto Zoom calls the following week. And, and I don't mean to pick on Zoom. It's not the Zoom technology. Zoom, WebEx, uh, BlueJeans, Teams, you name it. These virtual meetings, they're just, it's exhausting. And, and there's just a lot of them. So uh, try to figure out how to have less of them, but stay engaged. That's, that's one of my goals for 2021. How do we do less Zoom, but stay in touch with all of our colleagues? Um, how about you, Jason? What have you been up to? Well, first of all, I, I like that as a New Year's resolution. Fewer Zooms and, and more 
connection, more impact? How can we figure out how to do that? Um, because I'm definitely having Zoom fatigue and we're in, all of us are in back-to-back Zoom meetings all day long, every day. And we were talking just before the show about Zoom creep, about how we're getting more requests for early morning and late, uh, late afternoon, early evening Zoom calls because everybody's schedules are so filled up that when you need to have an important Zoom, the only time to do it is after hours. And so that kind of starts creeping into your family time, your personal time, and that's not good for quality of life. So um, have to resist with every ounce of energy Zoom creep. Um, so um, I've been busy, uh, very busy like you, Marilyn. And one of the things I've been working on is our sale conference. Um, this is our symposium on artificial intelligence in learning health systems that I've been organizing with my partners, Zach Gohani from Harvard, Nick Tatnetti from Columbia, Suchi Saria from Johns Hopkins, and Jesse Tenenbaum from Duke University. And we were planning an in-person sale conference in Bermuda back in, um, I think it was May. And of course, we had to cancel it. And we ended up deciding to do a pre-symposium virtually, um, which we just had, um, and uh, it went really well. And what we did was decide kind of a preview, right? A pre-symposium preview. Uh, We did three hours. We did three different panel discussions, one hour each, um, each with a different team of panelists. I chaired uh, a panel on... um, evaluating AI. How do you, if you're working in a health system and you have a need for AI, how do you know what vendor to choose? How do you know how to evaluate the AI and make those decisions? And so we had a fantastic panel discussion. Um, And I really liked this format because it wasn't scientific talks. We got the experts together, we had a theme and everybody just jumped in and started discussing. And then we had a Q and A session. And the way we actually did it is we pre-recorded the panel discussion with the panelists, and then we had a live Q&A. So we played the video and then took live questions afterwards, and it worked really, really well. Um, So, um, But but that was a lot of work putting that together, and we worked hard on that uh, during the summer. And um, we're planning to have an in-person conference October 18th through the 20th in 2021 in Bermuda. So hopefully we are all ready and safe um, to be able to travel by then. Um, uh, I'm head of our the informatics uh, component of our CTSA grant, our Clinical and Translational Science Award, which is a big funding program here in the United States um, for translational research. And um, our grant was reviewed, uh, submitted in the spring and reviewed and did extremely well. And we got a, a very fundable score. So we're all very happy about that and um, looking forward to seeing the reviews and what they thought about our informatics component. Um, I also took the lead on submitting a big NIH center grant uh, that was due on October 1st. That really consumed the last two months of the summer for me, unfortunately, and was I was full-time on that for two months. Uh, Marilyn was involved uh, and led a core. We had eight cores. Um, this is a, a big program focused on AI and Alzheimer disease. So we'll see how it does, um, but it was a lot of work, so that kept me pretty busy. Um, I'll mention... Um, 
we've had two lab meetings recently using a new Zoom-like um, uh, communication platform called GatherTown, which I'm sure some of the listeners have heard about by now, which is becoming somewhat popular, I would say, maybe in more geeky circles, but um, GatherTown, and it's you can find it at gather.town on the web. GatherTown is a Zoom-like uh, app, um, web app, but it, it um, places you in a kind of a pixelated 8-bit type um, video game. Uh, there's not really a game component to it, but it looks like a video game and you walk around in, in different backgrounds, you know, could have an office or a park um, or a beach, for example, or whatever you want. And you have little avatars and you walk around, it looks like an old Nintendo game, for example. Um, and when you come within a certain radius of other people, little Zoom video boxes appear and you can see and talk to one another. So you can walk around, you can be isolated, or you can join a group and have a discussion. And it's very dynamic. You can come and go as you please. So it's it's kind of interesting. We we liked it. I think I think it's a good start. And I think with some additional features, it could be could be quite popular and could maybe satisfy or or provide you know some of the things we're missing in the standard uh, Zoom blue jeans type calls. So that was fun. Uh, so I thought I'd mention it. Definitely give it a try. Um, also on the, the fun side, and this kind of crosses over into my hobby realm, which is also computational and geeky, of course, um, is I gave a talk at the Vintage Computer Festival East, uh, which is normally held at um, uh, a computer museum in Wall, New Jersey every year. And it was supposed to be held in the spring, but obviously couldn't do that. So we did it virtually in uh, this earlier this month. And I gave a talk about a computer program I wrote for the Atari home computers from the early 1980s that allows users to, through a selecting assembly language commands, interact directly with the 6502 processor that the Atari uses. And so I was supposed to give a live demo of this at VCF East um, back in the spring, but instead gave a... Uh, a, a recorded talk. But anyway, it's on YouTube, but you can find it on my YouTube channel if you're interested. And that, that was kind of fun. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and lastly, like Marilyn, I've been very busy with diversity efforts. Um, I did our required unconscious bias training, which all faculty are, were required to do. And I, I thought that was really very informative and really nicely done. Um, I'm on Maryland's um, EDI community for diversity for our uh, graduate program in genomics and computational biology. And I've also been uh, accepted an invitation um, as a faculty advisor for a new student-run group called the Penn Interdisciplinary Network for Scientists Promoting Inclusion, Retention, and Equity or Pen Inspire, and boy, they are on the ball, and this is really gaining some steam very quickly. Um, they have a number of, of distinguished faculty advisors, a number of student members, and seem to be very active, and you can, um, uh, you can find them on uh, Twitter, for example, I am Pen in, under the I am Pen Inspire hashtag. Um, so anyway, looking forward to working with them and seeing, seeing where that goes. Before we get into our discussion topic for the day, we have a few announcements. In case you are listening to us for the first time, you can find us at 
http colon slash slash bmipodcast.org. You can send feedback by email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. You can also leave feedback on Twitter. Our handle is at bmirpodcast and on Facebook. Be sure and leave us feedback on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Reviews help us improve the podcast, but also help improve our visibility. My name is Dr. Kevin B. Johnson. I'm professor and chair of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center Department of Biomedical Informatics with a joint appointment in pediatrics. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our discussion topic. Each episode, we will pick a hot topic for discussion. Today, our topic is sharing of EHR data. Jason will introduce the topic. Thanks, Marilyn. Um, Yeah, I thought this would be a good topic to discuss today because of the COVID pandemic. Um, There's been a lot of activity around data sharing to um, facilitate studies of COVID-19 and and related health issues. Um, And so I'll just very briefly, for those not familiar with this area, give give a a bit of an overview without too much detail. And there are really two main uh, models that people use to share uh, EHR data. The first is a centralized data model where you aggregate data, integrate data from multiple different sources. Could be could be different uh, different health systems around the country or around the world. Um, and the idea is to aggregate them in one database, one place, where you can then do an analysis of all the data all together, as if it were from a single electronic health record. And um, uh, a, a big part of that is what's called ETL. Um, you have to extract, that's the E, you have to extract the data from your own electronic health record. You have to transform the data. You have to clean it. You have to map it to, say, a common data model um, so that when you aggregate it uh, with other data, you're sure that all the data is coming from is the same type of data coming from the same types of places. So that's the transformation step, the the T in ETL. And then L is load. Uh, You have to load it into the new database, the new data warehouse where all the data, all the integrated data is going to live. So ETL is uh, an important part of this. And I mentioned a common data model. So this is really key is that when you integrate data from multiple different electronic health records, you want to know that um, all the different data elements are the same from each site, that they mean the same thing, they're the, from the same source, so that when you do the joint analysis, you're not adding any noise uh, to, to um, drown out the signal that you're looking for. And so one way to do that is to map it to a common data model, and um, another way is to map it to a biomedical ontology that describes the data and their relationships. Um, so this is a, a very important a important part of data integration. Now the centralized data model has the advantage of having the data all in one place and you've done the hard work to map it uh, onto a common data model and get it all integrated so you can analyze it jointly. 
Um, I think the downside of this model is it's very time consuming and challenging uh, when you have a lot of diverse sources of data from diverse sites and make, you know, doing the data cleaning, doing the transform step, uh, mapping to common data models, all of that can take a lot of time. And, uh, and if it's not done correctly, it can create a lot of issues. Um, also, I would say there's more of a security or privacy risk uh, due to lack of control. So if we're taking our data from our electronic health record here at Penn Medicine and then shipping it off to a centralized repository somewhere, we're at the mercy of the security of that centralized repository. So that once the data leaves Penn Medicine, we essentially are losing control of it. And that opens uh, up some, some, some risk around data security and privacy. Um, some examples of projects that use a centralized model. Um, one is Epic Cosmos. So Cosmos is a, um, uh, a product uh, developed by Epic, the electronic health record vendor that is used widely in the US and around the world. Um, and they developed Cosmos as a way to integrate uh, data from uh, different sites. So you sign up for Cosmos, you give them permission to see your data, and they have a, a limited uh, view of your data that they bring over and integrate with, with other data. And, and because they're Epic, because they develop the electronic health record, it's really easy to do the, uh, the ETL part of this. Um, and uh, because you're, you're, you're using Epic's data model. Um, and so Cosmos, you, you basically pay money to Epic, uh, you sign an agreement, you get access to Cosmos, and then you can go in and use a tool called Slicer Dicer, which allows you to do queries and look at different cohorts. You can find out you know, how, many, how many patients of this type are there. And, and the, the power is to be able to look at millions of patients. And I think they're up to something like 60 million patients in Cosmos. Does that sound right, Marilyn? Something like that, that sounds about right. It's in the tens of millions now. Um, I think it's 60 million. I think that was the last number I heard. Um, so that's really powerful to be able to go and query that data. Um, now, again, you're, you know, you're already, this it, Cosmos kind of eliminates some of the security concerns because you're already using Epic to store your data. And, uh, and you're, you're already trusting Epic with your data. Um, uh, so anyway, Cosmos is an example of this centralized data model. Uh, the UK Biobank is another one, right? Uh, in the UK Biobank project, they take clinical data from primary care providers and aggregate it um, in one place. And then, and then you can apply for and get access to that data and download it and do analyses locally. So that's uh, another, another centralized uh, way of doing things. And then the last one I'll mention is the National COVID Cohort Collaborative or N3C. This is an NIH funded uh, effort uh, nationally here in the United States um, to aggregate COVID data from participating health systems. And this is a, a pretty ambitious initiative um, that's been underway um, since uh, the pandemic began. And uh, they are starting to aggregate a lot of data and you can apply for access to an analytics platform that they have set up with a commercial company and, and do machine learning and statistical analyses on that aggregated data. So, um, 
And again, um, you know, the data is, my understanding is that the data is actually being housed at the NIH, which means the US government now owns your data. So you have to decide whether you feel comfortable with that. But, um, uh, but that's, you know, that's the price you pay for participating in a centralized resource as you give away control of your data. But I think you get some benefits of being able to analyze all the data in one place. So the other uh, alternative model is the federated uh, data model um, where the data stays at your institution. It doesn't leave your institution. So there's no need to prepare the data for integration with lots of other diverse uh, data sources. Um, however, um, you still need to map the data to a common data model so that you're sure that every federated site in your collaborative, your consortium, your collaborative network is, is using the same kinds of data. Um, and this has the benefit of greater privacy and security because your data stays at your institution behind your firewall with all your security procedures and you do the analyses there. And then, um, uh, and then you share analyses across the site. So you're not sharing individual level data, but you're sharing analytic results and doing meta-analyses and, and other approaches that, that uh, can jointly put together statistical models. Um, so I think the, the advantage of this model is it's, uh, you feel more comfortable about data security and privacy for the patients in your health system. Um, and, um, you're doing the analyses locally and then aggregating the analytic results. Um, I think one of the challenges with this approach is that if you do an analysis on your local data and find something interesting, you have to convince other sites to do that analysis. So you have to ship your code off to them and have them run it on their local data, which can be more challenging and uh, maybe not yield the same sample sizes that you would get with the aggregated or centralized <clears throat> data approach. So some examples of federated uh, data approaches, um, probably the best known is uh, the Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics Initiative or Odyssey, O-H-D-S-I. And what they do, so this is a consortium of sites from around the world, and there are many, many sites um, that participate in the Odyssey Consortium. All of them map their data to the Observational Medical Outcomes Partnership, or OMOP, common data model. And um, that's how they know that uh, everybody's working um, with the same data. And like I said, you do analyses locally and then others in the network can perform those analyses and then you can write a joint uh, paper together. Um, the next one I'll mention is the Consortium for Clinical Characterization of COVID-19 by EHR or the 4CE Consortium. This is the one that we participate in here at Penn Medicine. And this is a, a federated uh, system and we have sites from around the world and we have mapped our, all mapped our data to a biomedical ontology for COVID-19 developed at the University of Pittsburgh. And um, uh, we already have papers published from this and more papers going out the door. And it was a, it was a very uh, nimble operation and um, we were able to get off the ground very quickly because we didn't have to centralize the data in one place and go through that exercise. So, so that's, I would say, an additional advantage of the federated models. You can get up and going more quickly than the centralized model. 
So um, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, just a quick overview of the advantages and disadvantages of the centralized and federated approaches to sharing EHR data. Marilyn, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I have just a few additional things that came to mind uh, as you were going through those. I guess another kind of challenging aspect of the centralized data model, which, you know, certainly in some ways, it, it's quite frankly, just easier. Just get all the data in one place, and that way you can run whatever analysis you want. You can format the data how you want. You can transform the data how you want. Um, I, I will say so, I came up with two other challenges that I think are worth mentioning. One is related to the agreements that you have to get signed by the institutions that are going to share the data. Um, it, if you've ever gone through the process of a DUA or an MTA or a data sharing agreement or a data access agreement, there's lots of legal acronyms for these agreements. It's very time consuming. And especially if you're trying to do a project where you're going to share data across multiple institutions Rarely can you get many institutions to agree on the same language. And so I think what could end up happening is that you have a slight variation on the agreement with different institutions. And so, you know, let's say you want to do a project where you're going to be the central site with five others. Well, you have to get those five signed. Well, then if you want to add five more, that's five more MTAs that you need to go through. And if you then wanted to do a new project, um, depending on how you wrote it, you might have to do another set and if you add more people. So I think just from a kind of administrative paperwork perspective, I think that the centralized model can just be a lot more of a headache administratively. And so it's just something to be aware of. So there, it kind of, you know, do you want to do more work on the front end and reap the benefit later? Or do you want to keep doing that work over and over um, administratively? Because I think on the federated side, kind of the flip of that is that when you are working under these one of these things like OMOP and Odyssey, there's certainly administrative paperwork and kind of, you know, dotting I's and crossing T's that needs to be done when you are formatting your data and agreeing that your institution will participate in one of these kind of network collaborative efforts. But once you do it, it's done. So you don't have to then do it again for every single project. And so I think administratively, my sense would be that the federated approach is going to be simpler than the um, centralized approach. Another one is uh, managing the duplication of effort of projects in the centralized approach. And I definitely am aware of this with respect to UK Biobank. So I've seen kind of a couple of different models. So the UK Biobank model is that you submit a proposal with what you're going to do, but they don't police the proposals such that if four groups propose the same project, they will allow all four groups to have the data. And it's kind of, you know, may the best person win, may the fastest to publish get there. There's no, no kind of emphasis on that duplication. It's really up to you to read through all the other project proposals and, and look and see if there's duplication. But I definitely have heard of people being very disappointed because they were in the midst of a UK Biobank analysis and then a paper came out on UK Biobank that was doing the same thing that they were planning or that they were already working on. Um, the same kind of thing I've seen uh, through other kind of centralized data sets. Although the other option is that 
the organization that maintains the data controls what who does what project. And I think the VA uh, and Million Veterans Program does this, as well as, oh, there's one other CDC-related data set. Um, uh, trying to remember, I think maybe it was NHANES, but specifically NHANES with the genetic data. The kind of epidemiologic data, I think you can use pretty free, freely, but with the genetic data, you had to submit your analyses to their computer. And not only is the data centralized, but the analytics are centralized. And so um, I think there's kind of an approval process to get things to run. So, you know, the flip is you don't have duplicated effort, but there's a process in order to get to run your analyses. And you have to work through kind of a committee to get permission to run your analysis. So that's another reason that I prefer the federated model for those types of things than, you know, the group can do studies on the federated data. I guess I don't know how Odyssey controls that duplication of effort, because I guess presumably multiple groups could run a similar analysis within Odyssey. And I, I'm not, are you aware of how they, how they keep track of that? No, I don't have any experience with Odyssey. And now that we've mapped our own data onto OMOP, we can participate in Odyssey. So I'm looking forward to figuring that out, but I don't know the details yet. Yeah, I'm anxious to find that out too. Um, the other thing that I would mention is that the, I think with the federated model, so something like OMOP and Odyssey, it's so much easier to conceive of adding to the scope of the project or adding kind of new projects or new collaborators on projects. So if you do a centralized project, you know, you kind of have scoped out the variables, you have figured out how to harmonize, you've gotten that done. If you now want to add 50 more variables, I mean, that's a ton of work again. Whereas under a federated model, when you've mapped all the data, you just pull those new variables out of the data model. And then similarly, kind of all of the institutions that did that same process are now eligible collaborators instead of now you have to convince them to map their data. So I, I guess it, you know, I don't want to say that one is better than the other. I think they ha both have strengths and limitations and it, it's really, where do you want to spend your effort and, and how much control do you want to have over the data or the analyses or kind of be a part of a, a federated group where you might relinquish a little bit of control, but it, it may open up a lot more opportunities, but you maintain control of the security of your data. So uh, that, those are my thoughts. Yeah, those are, those are good points. You sound like somebody that's done this before, Marilyn. <laughs> I may or may not have been a part of a coordinating center for centralized data uh, at one point in my past life. <laughs> Yeah, I think I agree with you. Each has strengths and weaknesses, and and you just have to weigh weigh those as you make decisions. Um, I would add, you know, to your your comments about process for participating in a centralized data resource. Um, you know, in addition to kind of the legal hoops you have to jump through to, for the data use agreements and MTAs, et cetera. Uh, you know, there are a lot of stakeholders uh, involved with electronic health record data. And you have to get them all on board, right? So they all have to feel comfortable with the data sharing effort, uh, sending data outside the institution. So that usually involves um, the CEO of the health system, the chief medical information officer, the, the chief information officer, 
the chief research information officer, the chief privacy officer, you know, there's a whole long list of people that, um, you know, are the gatekeepers that protect the data on behalf of the patients and take that role very seriously. And you have to go through through them and various committees. And so it's a lot of legwork um, to present the project and talk it through what the risks are and get them all on board to agree to something like this. Um, the other thing I would say, I think, um, is that the methodologies for doing analyses in a federated way have improved pretty significantly over the last five years. So there's a lot of great new methods for combining statistical results across federated data sets. Um, and there's a lot of work in the machine learning area as well on, on federated analyses for things like deep learning neural networks. So there's been a lot of progress made and uh, there's a lot of good methods out there for doing that. I think it also, it's gotten easier to do that because when you are working under a standard data model, the files typically are formatted the same. And so this concept of kind of sharing your analytic pipeline with one another just becomes so much easier when people are working with input files that, you know, you know what the files are going to look like at the other locations that you're collaborating with. Whereas, you know, back in the old days before we had these data models and standards, you know, it you'd send them code and it wouldn't run. Uh, well, you know, tell me about your rows and columns. You know, do, how is your matrix set up and how are your files formatted? Those things don't come up nearly as often when you're working under standards and it just makes it much easier to, to share code. Yeah, you know, another caveat to keep in mind for both of these, um, both the centralized and the federated, um, you know, we take advantage of common data models and ontologies to help us make sure we're, we're working with the same data. Uh, the problem is that you don't have any control of the upstream process from that. You know, uh, the data could be generated with different machines at different institutions or with different workflows or you know, how clinicians input the data into the electronic health record could, could be different at different institutions and different decisions are being made. And you have no idea about any of that when you're mapping your data to a common data model and saying, this is the same thing as at our institution as it is at another institution. They could be, you know, if they're coming from completely different workflows and machines, they, they could be, uh, there could be a lot of variability there that would influence the aggregated analysis or the federated analysis. So something to keep in mind, and I think we don't we don't do a, a good job at all of of measuring that or monitoring that in any way or accounting for it. No, that's a great point, and it's something that has certainly come up in a lot of the FIWAS related studies that we've done. You know, looking just simply at, at ICD nine codes and ICD ten codes, we see that in so the for those who aren't aware, these are the diagnosis codes that um, clinicians and providers use for billing. Um, we've definitely seen, you know, for a lot of diseases and traits and phenotypes and symptoms, there are multiple codes for the same thing. And some of the practice of kind of which code you choose depends on who your resident was, who was teaching you. And, you know, this clinic tends to put this code in for hypertension, but there are four other codes that would be equivalent, but they happen to use this one. Well, another health system or even another clinic within the health system might use a different one. So those types of um, kind of variabilities, I think can exist all throughout the EHR. 
Yeah, this is a uh, important and timely topic, and there's no question that COVID-19 has really held our feet to the fire as informaticians to, you know, we've been talking about um, aggregating data, you know, analyzing data in federated networks uh, for years now, and we have been forced in the COVID-19 era to uh, to do it and make it work and deliver results. And so it's uh, it's an interesting time, but I think I think both areas are going to accelerate greatly because of our COVID experience. It is now time for some news items. The following are a few things that caught our eye. Marilyn will get us started with the first item. Thanks, Jason. Dr. Mario Kren from the University of Toronto tweeted on October 9th about the exponential growth of artificial intelligence and machine learning papers in archive. Right now, the number of papers is doubling about every 23 months and is currently between 3,000 and 4,000 papers per month. That's a lot of papers, wow. Yeah, I was really, really shocked uh, to see that. I wouldn't have guessed as many as 4,000 papers a month, but, uh, and, and, and going up exponentially. So we'll, we'll see where that plateaus, but that's, that's just amazing, an amazing increase in productivity uh, in the AI ML space. Okay, on to uh, some news about one of our colleagues. Um, uh, Casey Green, uh, who is uh, an associate professor here at Penn Medicine in the pharmacology department, um, is moving on to start a new informatics institute and a department at the University of Colorado at the medical school there. And uh, Casey uh, was a graduate student with me, and um, I uh, re helped recruit him to Dartmouth when I was there and helped recruit him here to Penn. And he is a uh, phenomenal informatician and expert in machine learning and deep learning and uh, analysis of big data. Um, and we're gonna miss Casey, but I, as, as his mentor, I am uh, so excited for him and uh, I'm sure he's gonna do great things at the University of Colorado. They're lucky to get him. Um, he is a, a, a star in the field. And uh, for those of you junior faculty out there who are looking for faculty positions, I'm sure he's gonna be recruiting a number of faculty over the next couple of years. Yeah, I just wanna add that, I mean, it's oh, so bittersweet. You know, I was so excited when I came to Penn, Casey and I are academic siblings. And because we both uh, trained under Jason for our PhDs and I've watched his work since he was a grad student and I was so excited to be at the same institution. So I'm you know, certainly sad to see him go. Uh, we just started to interact more, but I'm so happy for him. I think it's, it's an incredible opportunity and he's just, he's gonna do a great job. Well, one of the advantages of having your former students uh, be successful and, and, and work their way into full professorships and leadership positions is then you can collaborate with them again. They've made their careers, they've made their mark, and they can go back and collaborate with their mentors without anybody uh, pointing fingers and worrying about that. So I'm excited. Hopefully this opens the door to some, some exciting collaborations with Casey. Okay, uh, on to our next piece. Um, I read a very inspirational and informative piece in leapsmag.com by L. Lett, who is an MD-PhD candidate here at the University of Pennsylvania. The title of the piece is, I'm a black genderqueer medical student 
here's my hard-won wisdom for students and educational institutions. So I'm going to just read a, a paragraph here that he wrote, um, which I think sets the stage for this, and then some of the tips uh, that he provides. So he says, uh, and I quote, uh, and by the way, I'm using the pronoun he. Um, I think uh, I think the preferred pronoun uh, by L is they. So if I slip, um, uh, the pre preferred pronoun is they. Okay, um, so from L, in the last 12 years, I have earned degrees from Harvard College and Duke University and trained in an MD-PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. Through this process, I have assembled much educational privilege and can now speak with authority that is conferred in these ivory towers. Along the way, as a black, genderqueer, first-generation, low-income trainee, the systems of oppression that permeate American society, racism, transphobia, and classism, among others, coalesced in the microcosm of academia into a unique set of challenges that I had to navigate. I would like to share some of these lessons I have learned over the years in the format of advice for Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, uh, BIPOC or BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus trainees, as well as members of the educational institutions that seek to serve them. So uh, here's a list of six uh, recommendations or advice. Uh, L says to BIPOC and LGBTQ plus trainees, who you are is an asset, not an obstacle. And uh, he, he lays out some reasons why that is. So I recommend you read that. He says, uh, L says, uh, to educators and institutions, allyship is active and uncomfortable. It requires a commitment to action and not ideas. And, you know, this idea of allyship is that it's easy for people who are not part of these communities to, to show sympathy, to show support, um, but it's hard to make actual action and change. Um, and so, um, and, and also in, by showing support, um, you can actually put individuals in these groups into uncomfortable situations, such as inviting them to a town hall and asking them to share their experiences publicly puts them in a very uncomfortable position. So that's what, what uh, L means by allyship is active and uncomfortable. Number three, to BIPOC and LGBTQ plus trainees, your labor is worth compensation and recognition. And L makes the, the very good point that people of color, people of different backgrounds, um, underrepresented backgrounds are being, are putting a lot of time into dealing with these issues and they're not compensated for it. And for a uh, MD PhD student, for example, you know, MD PhD students have very rigorous curriculums, very, very time, time uh, uh, intensive and demanding. And, you know, they're having to take time out of their busy schedules to deal with these issues while they're for example, white counterparts are not. And uh, so, you know, I, I think it's a good point. Your labor is worth compensation and recognition. Number four, to educators and institutions, compensate marginalized members of your organizations for making it better. So uh, I think that's a great piece of advice. Number five, to BIPOC and LGBTQ plus trainees, 
seek and be mentors, help others uh, in your situation. Um, great, great advice. And finally, to educators and institutions, hire better mentors and be better mentors. And this is on all of us um, to, to help these individuals um, uh, through these difficult situations and, and help them uh, uh, achieve the recognition and the opportunities that they absolutely deserve. So uh, L goes on to say, and I quote, the suggestions I provided are about navigating medical education as it exists now. I hope that incorporating these practices will allow institutions to better serve the BIPOC and LGBTQ plus trainees that help make their communities vibrant. I also hope that my fellow BIPOC and LGBTQ plus trainees can see themselves in this conversation and feel affirmed and equipped in navigating medicine based on tools I provide here. However, my words are only a tempering measure. True justice in medical education and health will only happen when we overhaul our institutions and dismantle systems of oppression in our society. So I agree completely. I highly recommend this article. It's very well written, provides great advice, um, and we have a link in the show notes to it. Thanks for that, Jason. Uh, the next item is uh, from Reuters. They reported on October 8th that IBM plans to break up its 109-year-old company to focus on cloud growth. The IT services unit will split off. Uh, and I quote, IBM, which has sought to make up for slowing software sales and seasonal demand for its mainframe servers, said it would now focus on open hybrid cloud and AI solutions that will account for more than half of its recurring revenues. Wow, that's a big shift. Yeah, that's big news for IBM. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I think it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, and they really have put uh, a lot of emphasis on, on uh, IBM Watson and their AI solutions, which have gotten some traction. And uh, I guess they see the IT services unit as a distraction for what they consider their, their main focus now. Okay, next, um, we would like to uh, offer sincere congratulations to our colleague, Dr. Zach Kohani from Harvard, who won this year's Morris F. Collin Award from the American College of Medical Informatics. Um, and um, I wanted to read a description of this award from Bill Turney, uh, who serves as the current president of ACMI. And he says, the Morris Collin Award is only awarded to the most distinguished informaticians. ACMI is honored to recognize Dr. Kohani for his substantial accomplishments to the field of biomedical informatics. Dr. Kohani has revolutionized many areas of biomedical informatics and has changed the way we practice patient care delivery. He is also an incredibly generous and gifted mentor, offering guidance to more than 50 formal trainees, many of whom are ACMI fellows. So uh, sincere congrats to Zach and um, I've worked with Zach on a couple projects over the years, and I've, I've always thoroughly enjoyed working with him. He's a brilliant informatician and a super nice guy and pleasure to work with. So if you ever get the chance to work with him, definitely do it. And there's a link here in the show notes um, to his award. And I'd also like to extend congratulations to the 13 new elected fellows of the ACMI, of which Marilyn is one. And I'll just read their names quickly. Uh, the first is Tiffany Bright uh, from IBM, uh, Teresa Cullen from the Pima County Health Department, Amar Das from IBM, 
Melissa Handel from Oregon Health and Science University and Oregon State University, Tina Hernandez Bussard from Stanford University School of Medicine, Farah Magrabi from uh, Makare University, uh, and our own Marilyn Ritchie from the University of Pennsylvania, Renato Sabatini from Bahiana School of Medicine and Public Health, Nick Tatnetti from Columbia University, Kim in Unertel from Vanderbilt University, Dennis Wall from Stanford, Griffin Weber from Harvard, and Rong Zhu from Case Western. So congratulations to everybody. And as Marilyn said earlier, everybody will be inducted into ACMI at the annual AMIA meeting in a few weeks. And uh, I have links here in the show notes to both the, the, the AMIA press releases for uh, Zach Kohani's award and for the 13 ACMI fellows. Congrats to everybody. Thanks, Jason. And yeah, congrats to all of my, my fellow inductees. I look forward to, to seeing all of them online soon. Um, the next by piece, the way, oh, go ahead. By the way, I'll just mention, there are only, uh, I think, a little over 300 ACMI fellows worldwide. So it really is a, a very distinguished group. Yep. Which is why it's such an honor to be chosen. Just really, I, <laughs> just... So excited. Um, the next piece, uh, there was a nice piece in Genome Web on the growth in demand for Chief Research Information Officers, or CREO, and the evolution of the role. From the piece, Jeffrey Smith, VP of Public Policy at the American Medical Informatics Associ Association, described CREOs as executives who are in charge of leveraging clinical data for research, including clinical trials. They also use informatics related to the secondary research use of clinical data, including trans information from electronic health records and laboratory results, including genomic tests. Uh, it's clear that CREOs are evolving just as the access to and the research with clinical data is evolving as well. And I know we've certainly seen uh, an increase in CREOs at many institutions uh, we're very lucky at Penn that we have a wonderful CREO. Her name is Danielle Mowry. She's been with us uh, about a year and a half, almost two years. Is it two years already? Wow. Gosh, time flies. I guess so, because I've been here for almost three. Gosh, time is flying. Um, so yeah, Danielle Mowry is our CREO, and she's just incredible to work with. Um, she really is just such an asset and in linking the, the research side with the health system. And I'm just Oh, it's such an honor to work with her. Yeah, I agree. We're, we're really fortunate to have Danielle and she's done uh, an absolutely amazing job here at Penn Medicine. And, um, you know, the, the CREO role is interesting because it varies for, at every institution depending on their, their needs. Um, you know, some CREOs are responsible for a data warehouse and others aren't. And so there's a lot of variability in the position. And it's and like you said, Marilyn, it's definitely a position that's rapidly evolving and changing as our institutions change and, and um, you know, deal with clinical data and research issues, et cetera. So yeah, um, uh, definitely looking forward to to where the creo the creos go and and uh, I've long thought that there should be a creo organization or some sort of society or or you know the creos should get together more often and share notes and talk to one another and I agree with you you know they have that for um, bioinformatics core managers and I don't know if it's an official organization but I know back when I used to run the bioinformatics core at Vanderbilt the core manager 
um, I think might have been part of ISMB meetings, but there was always a, they had like a, a listserv, they had, a, I don't know if it was a wiki or some sort of online community where they could talk to one another. And then they had get togethers at annual meetings. And, and I know that they learned a lot from each other and they would be able to develop best practices and kind of share lessons learned, both the, you know, the wins and the losses to help save one another time. They really should, should have something like that for CREOs. Maybe we could talk to Amy about putting something like that together. Well, there's a National Society for Genetic Counselors. Why not a National Society for Chief Research Information Officers? Yeah, that's right. The last thing I'll mention, uh, we do have a link to the Genome Web article in the show notes. Okay, thanks, Marilyn. Um, there's a great new paper on archive by Dr. Marja Gassemi from the University of Toronto uh, and her collaborators and colleagues reviewing the challenges and opportunities in machine learning for health. And they review a number of important issues. I'm not gonna list them here, but it's definitely worth a read and the link to the archive papers here in the notes. I also wanted to mention a new paper in Nature Medicine from our colleague, uh, Dr. Atul Butte and his collaborators on the minimal information about clinical artificial intelligence modeling. And they provide a, a checklist uh, in this paper um, and it's meant to improve transparent reporting of AI algorithms and results in medicine. I, I think this is a really useful list. They include things like, you know, what is the study design, the clinical workflow, uh, the clinical baselines, et cetera. Um, uh, what, what, how was the data split for training and testing and validation? Um, was cross-validation done? Um, how was the algorithm optimized? How were the models selected? All the details of, of that are, are needed. How, did, how was the performance of the machine learning model or a method or algorithm uh, measured? Um, how, how is the model described? How is the model interpreted? And is there a pipeline which allows reproducibility of the results? So, um, and I think they had some others in here. These are all really good suggestions. I, I, I love this paper, but I found myself wanting more detail. I kind of wish it was longer and laid out some more of the details. So maybe, maybe they'll do a follow-up paper. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a great paper. And it, this one, and then there've been uh, just a lot of talk about reproducibility that's definitely kind of pushed me to start to um, push my lab members toward using open data or simulated data where possible in, even if it's a supplemental analysis for their papers, but, you know, especially when it's data that can't be shared, I feel like you have to show or provide data and show the results, even if it's in a supplement that someone else can get the code, get the data and reproduce it so that they then can believe the results that you have on the data that they aren't allowed to have access to. So I, I think it's, yeah, really important to start pushing ourselves towards that. Um, the next item is uh, another um, manuscript. Since single, since single cell genomics has really taken off and presents a number of analytic challenges, uh, this paper that was published in Genome Biology earlier this year uh, is really timely. It's on 11 grand challenges in single cell data science. These challenges include data sparsity, flexible analytics frameworks, mapping single cells to a reference atlas, generalizing trajectory inference, finding spatial patterns, dealing with errors and missing data, and scaling phylogenetic models to many cells and sites. 
Um, we have a link to the article in the show notes. I think it's fascinating. You know, I've been very much watching the single cell genomics space, you know, at a nice, I would say safe distance. I'm really not dabbling at all yet because it, it seems incredibly complicated. Um, I was on a panel for NHGRI a few years ago and it was just when it was starting to emerge. And one of the things that strikes me is that until we have, at least in the space of precision medicine, which is where my head often is. So trying to develop models and understand what's happening in humans to either develop therapeutics or make predictions about outcomes. We need to be able to assay the cells to run the omics. And so until we can get the single cells that we need, I struggle to see how I can use it in my work. Now, if we get, you know, low invasive uh, biopsy, you know, you can take a pill and it'll go like scrape the gut and bring the cells out from the small intestine that you need uh, so that you can run your single cell experiments, then, you know, maybe that'll work. But um, it's it's a fascinating area. I, I'm enjoying watching it, but I'm glad that I don't have to deal with the data yet. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really the hot area in genomics and bioinformatics right now. So um yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. Um, I, I find it a little intimidating, to be honest. It's, it's a lot of data, very complex data. The field is moving very rapidly. I think it's, it's, uh, it's got to be really fun for people working in this area, but it's, it's kind of like deep learning, right? You're, you're, you get on that fast moving train and, and uh, you know, it's uh, sometimes a bumpy ride, but I, I think there are tremendous opportunities there. I really like this paper a lot and, and they really, in, in quite a bit of detail, lay out these 11 challenges. It's This is a long paper and a very thoughtful paper. So if you are thinking about getting into single cell genomics and data science and informatics, uh, definitely read this paper. I, I, I thought it was very enlightening. Okay, um, there uh, was a uh, workforce piece in science from October 16th by Katie Langan um, that we thought we would mention on the tanking of the faculty job market. And let me, let me just sort of historically set the stage for this piece. When, when I was coming out of graduate school back, um, I finished my PhD in 98 and took my first faculty position in 1999. At, at that time, Bill Clinton was president and, um, the uh, the government was in the process of doubling the NIH budget. And every year we were having double digit increases, 10, 12, 13% increases in the NIH budget uh, in, in the process of moving to a complete doubling of the NIH budget. And so during that time, uh, in medical schools and universities around the country were building new buildings, hiring faculty, and expanding very rapidly to account for, you know, to, to take advantage of all this new money that was gonna be coming for biomedical research. And so when I got my first faculty position, I didn't have to do a postdoc because uh, Vanderbilt University at the time was, was planning to double the number of faculty. So I was part of that initial wave of faculty hiring at Vanderbilt. Um, and uh, so it was, it was an exciting time. And then of course, we all, we all some of us know that George W. Bush uh, became president and the Republicans decided that they didn't like um, investing in, in, in biomedical research and flatlined the NIH budget, which we've basically lived with since then. <laughs> um, and um, 
So, and, and that of course then set the stage for this piece on, you know, faculty hiring became more difficult because there was uh, less money, et cetera. So, um, okay, so I'm gonna quote um, uh, Katie Langan here, the author of this piece. Uh, she says, the scarcity of academic jobs is a perennial problem for U.S. science trainees, but this year, faculty job openings at U.S. institutions are down 70% compared with last year, according to an analysis of job advertisements on the Science Careers Job Board. Only 173 U.S.-based jobs were posted between July and September this year compared to 571 during the same period last year. Dismal numbers reflect anxiety about university finances amid the pandemic and are leaving postdocs and soon-to-be PhD graduates worried about their future. Um, so anyway, I thought this was, you know, we're all under hiring freezes. We're under a hiring freeze here at the University of Pennsylvania. We can't hire faculty except in unusual or, you know, important circumstances. Um, and every university around the country is going, and around the world, I assume, is going, going through this. Um, and, you know, I've seen this with my own postdocs. Um, I, I have about eight postdocs in the lab right now, and many of them are senior and we're planning to look for faculty positions this year, but there just aren't faculty positions to be had. So I'm having to uh, scramble to keep them employed as postdocs um, and, you know, can't take on new postdocs now because I have to fund the existing postdocs who can't get faculty positions. So it's kind of a kind of a difficult time for for postdocs and junior you know people seeking junior faculty positions. Yeah, no, I've definitely seen. I think because of this, or I I guess I don't know how much of it is because of this, or if this would have happened anyway. But I've seen some postdocs and graduate students starting to look more at alternative paths outside of academia than what I had seen previously. So either um, pharma or other um, IT industry, the tech sector, um, even some NIH options, and as well as considering academia, but more in a staff scientist or data scientist role rather than being the PI of a lab. And like I said, I'm not sure if that's specifically because the, the hiring market is so tight or if it was trending that way anyway for other reasons. I guess it's hard to tell. Yeah, well, ho hopefully, most postdocs can continue doing what they're doing until the pandemic is over and universities start hiring again. I, you know, I think there's good reason to suspect the NIH budget's going to start going up again and there will be more research money. And so I, I think hiring will probably get back on track hopefully a year from now, but uh, there's certainly no guarantee. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Okay. That's it for the news for today. Listener feedback is very important to us. We would very much like to hear your questions, ideas for topics, and thoughts about how we can do a better job. You can always reach us by sending email to feedback at bmipodcast.org. As mentioned earlier, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Now on to our journal club discussion. Each episode, we will pick a recent paper for discussion Today, we're going to discuss a paper on deep phenotyping for COVID-19, uh, and Marilyn's going to give us a brief overview. Great. Thanks, Jason. 
So today, the paper that we're talking about is titled Deep Phenotyping of 34,128 Adult Patients Hospitalized with COVID-19 in an International Network Study. It's by Byrne et al., and it was published in Nature Communications in early October of 2020. Uh, we will have a link to the paper in the show notes, so if you want to look it up, you are welcome to. So uh, I'll just give a really brief overview. So in the study, they were looking at the characteristics of adults who were hospitalized with COVID-19 and then comparing them to adults who were hospitalized for influenza. So the study, uh, as mentioned in the title, is about 34,000 people. About a little more than half are from Spain, so about 18,000. There are about 8,000 from the United States and 7,000 from South Korea. And then they compared that with 84,000 individuals with influenza who were hospitalized between 2014 and 2019. So the main thing that they were trying to do is kind of look for characteristics that would differentiate COVID from influenza. The kind of conclusion of the paper is that COVID-19 patients have more typically been male, younger, and with fewer comorbidities and lower medication use than the comparison group for influenza. Um, I don't think that the results of this study are, are as important as just kind of the, the framing or the design uh, of the study itself. So the, the study had two aims. So one was looking at the characteristics of patients with COVID-19 who are hospitalized with COVID-19, specifically their demographics, medical conditions, and medication use. And then the second aim was the influenza component. So this cohort study is based on electronic health record data that was collected through primary care and hospital records, hospital billing data and insurance claims from the US, South Korea and Spain. All of these sites participated in the Odyssey network that we talked about earlier. So the Observational Health Data Sciences and Informatics Network, and they all had their data mocked to the OMOP common data model uh, that we talked about earlier. The benefits to this approach, so uh, this is one of those uh, situations where the contributing centers did not need to share their individual level patient data with one another. All of the sites, so this is one of those federated models. They all had their data mapped in the same data model, and then they were all participating in this Odyssey network. And so they were able to easily share the analytical code across the different sites. Um, I'm not gonna read through all of the sites that participated. I'll just kind of skim this because there were so many. So yes, there were three countries, but from the US, uh, there, are, there are data from Columbia University and uh, New York Presbyterian Hospital uh, University of Colorado, which includes data from the UC Health System, which is 12 hospitals, uh, the VA, so the Veterans Affairs, which includes 170 medical centers. Uh, then from Spain, it was several large health systems. So the Information System for Research and Primary Care, that covers about 80% of the population in Catalonia, Spain. Uh, the data from South Korea came from their health insurance review and assessment. So as you read through the method section, you get a sense for how many different institutions data are included in this study. And all that I kept thinking when I read this paper is like, oh my gosh, can you imagine trying to do this through a centralized data model or the centralized framework where you have to do MTAs across three countries 
government organizations like the VA and the uh, socialized health care that they have in South Korea, the different kind of private and public medical centers in the U.S., that would have been a nightmare and certainly would have made a study like this impossible in the time frame that they did the study. And I'll mention in just a minute that time frame. So when I read this, all I kept thinking is that things like OMOP and the Odyssey Network um, really facilitate and enable this type of work to be done. So here, all of the data partners ran the same analysis package on the data using a distributed or federated network approach. And so all of the analyses are run local and then you just share the summary statistics across the sites. Um, the way that they did this, just to get a sense of perspective, so in the United States, you know, COVID-19 became a, a really big deal in March of 2020. The Odyssey Network held a COVID-19 study-a-thon in March of 2020, and that's when this study was initiated. Uh, they then did the study. They submitted this paper on July 1st. It was accepted September 10th, and it came out in October. That is incredible time for being able to do a study with electronic health record data across three countries. That just would not be possible without something like Odyssey and OMOP. Um, the last thing that I'll just mention, this same um, OMOP common data model is being used to facilitate um, multiple other COVID-19 studies, including the 4CE and the N3C consortium, both of which we talked about in the discussion session section of the podcast today. So just uh, if you haven't seen this, or if you're not as familiar with Odyssey and OMOP, I think, you know, this is a, a a short paper. It's very interesting because it's relevant related to COVID-19, but it just gives you a sense for the power of a common data model and a network like Odyssey. Jason, do you have any thoughts on the paper? Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. Yeah, I thought this this was a good paper to cover because of the successful uh, use of the federated model for data, data analysis. And um, I was wondering, you probably don't know the answer to this, um, but do you have any clue how um, the analytics is actually done in the Odyssey network? How, you know, how they're sharing code? I don't. And it's actually one of the things that I'm anxious to find out now that we can participate. Um, yeah. I don't know if they're using a central repository or if they're emailing the code around. I'm, I'm not sure how that's working, but I'm excited to find out. So in the 4CE COVID consortium that we're part of, um, we're developing a, uh, basically an R instance in a Docker container that we're going to send around to all the sites so that everybody's using exactly the same version of R uh, when we do the analyses. So that'll make sure that, you know, it's standardized and that, that any, any analytical differences are not due to the versioning of the software or the operating system or any of those kinds of things, the particular R libraries that are installed. Uh, so that's how we're doing it. But I was curious how Odyssey is doing it. We'll have to we'll have to find out. I just don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, anyway, this is a great paper. I would highly recommend it. Now on to our software segment. Today we will introduce the PVCLUST package in R. Jason will give a brief overview. Thanks, Marilyn. Um, you know. Hierarchical cluster analysis is one of those methods that, that we all use all the time 
for omics data, for EHR data, it's, it's uh, a great way to both visualize and look at relationships among the columns and rows in a, in a data matrix. Um, so very common method. And one of the questions that comes up all the time is, you know, are the clusters that we're seeing meaningful or significant, or are they just chance, uh, you know, chance clusterings of, in the data? And a traditional hierarchical cluster analysis doesn't provide p-values or any kind of confidence on, on the actual clusterings. Um, so I, you know, this is, because this is so commonly done, I thought I would mention this package, pvclust uh, in R, because it's been around for a while, but I'm, I over and over again recommend it to people and I'm surprised when people don't know about it. Um, so what PVClust does is performs a bootstrap analysis. So it resamples your data and then looks at how consistent the cluster memberships are from your original hierarchical cluster analysis and then puts a confidence interval on the branch of the dendrogram in the hierarchical clustering so that you can st start to make some statistical inferences about the clusters that you're observing. So it's a great way to, to differentiate those clusters that are reproducible on bootstrapping versus those that aren't and can greatly uh, help with the interpretation. So anyway, it's an R package, it's easy to use, it's been around for a long time. Um, if you're not familiar with it, I highly recommend checking out. It's a great tool to have in your toolbox. I'm so glad that you brought this to my attention because I'm one of those people who uses clustering all the time and I was completely unaware of this tool. So thank you. So we have uh, links in the show notes to the R package uh, on CRAN and um, the original paper that describes the method. My name is Michael Besich and I am Chairman and Distinguished University Professor of Biomedical Informatics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And you are listening to the Biomedical Informatics Roundtable podcast with Jason and Marilyn. Now on to our Biomedical Informatics Conferences update. First, I wanna give an update on the Pacific Symposium on Biocomputing. So this is one of my absolute favorite conferences of the year. It is held every January in Hawaii, which can you think of a better time to go to Hawaii? No, no, at least I cannot. <laughs> Unfortunately, with the pandemic, this will be the first year in, I believe, 12 years in a row that I will not be flying to Hawaii to start my year. And I'm heartbroken, but obviously we cannot travel uh, and certainly not travel that far on airplanes. So PSB has decided to go virtual this year. Uh, the conference will still take place. I believe it's January 4th through the 8th. I will look real quick while we're talking. Um, the registration is live now and registration is free this year because of the pandemic. So we were able to uh, waive the registration fees. So we're hoping that that will make it possible for more people to attend. Um, oh, I had the dates off. It's January 5th through 7th. Sorry about that. So January 5th through 7th of 2021. Um, an important note is that we are opening up abstracts for the poster session. They're due on December 15th. I believe the site is now open that they can be submitted. 
all of the posters are going to get submitted submitted to um, Faculty 1000 Research and then get a, a DOI from Faculty of 1000. So they will all be kind of published in that way. And then we are looking at the different um, mechanisms for having the poster sessions as well. So all of the details of that would be coming soon as well as the schedule. We've been working really hard to get the schedule kind of compatible with as many time zones as possible. You know, this is an international conference and there just aren't times of day that work across the world. And so we're trying to, to start early enough that some of our Europe and Asia colleagues might be able to join for some of it, as well as not being too early for our West Coast colleagues, and then finishing at a time that uh, that still many people can be on, though it won't work for everyone. Um, but we're doing the best we can uh, to accommodate as many time zones as possible. So the schedule should go up sometime by the end of, uh, I think it's supposed to be the end of October or early November. And as I said, registration is open. Um, I would say if you are a junior faculty or a postdoc or a graduate student and you're getting nervous about the lack of opportunity to present this year because you're not going to as many conferences, this one is free. And as long as you're doing science that is bioinformatics and um, relevant and you know sound science, there is an opportunity to present a poster at PSB. And so this is a way for you to, to get some networking and get a presentation on your CV um, at no cost to yourself, just the cost of your time. So that's it for PSB. Jason, how about you? Yeah, this is, this is usually about the time I start going through Hawaii withdrawal and looking forward to going the first week of January to PSB and seeing all the great colleagues that are part of that community. And so it's it's going to be rough uh, not going to PSB in January, but hopefully we can go the, go the following year and get, get back on track. But I look forward to the conference uh, virtually, and um, I'm involved in two workshops. Um, I'm co-chairing the Translational Bioinformatics workshop um, with Dokyun Kim and Juhan Kim and participating in, in one other. Um, so a quick um, AMIA update, the American Medical Informatics Association is having its annual meeting virtually on uh, November 14th through 18th. Um, and um, it features a plenary session with Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci is going to speak at AMIA. So uh, that's a, a great draw for the conference this year. Um, it's not cheap. It is $1,000, about $1,000 for the virtual registration. Um, and you can, if you don't want to participate, you can follow along on Twitter. The AMIA uh, conference hashtag is AMIA2020. And I'll just mention that I'm co-chairing um, with John Holmes and, and some others um, a uh, panel discussion on explainable artificial intelligence. And that is going to be at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, November 18th. And the session is numbered S73. And uh, have a link in the show notes here to the conference. Um, there should be time to register by the time the podcast comes out if you want to attend. And I certainly recommend it. It is now time for our segment on advice and topics of interest for trainees and junior faculty. Today, our topic of discussion is tips for hiring postdocs and graduate students to be presented by Jason. Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. What, you know, I, 
I, I think both of us get asked this question all the time from junior faculty. How do you how do you find good postdocs? And how do you how do you know who are the right graduate students to accept into your laboratory? So we thought we'd have a, a brief discussion about this. Um, you know, first of all, let me say that I have never in my entire career ever advertised for postdocs. I have found every postdoc by word of mouth through networking, or they have somehow found me or interested in my research. And, um, you know, that can be hard early in your career because you don't have a strong network, but you can certainly talk to your advisors and mentors, people you knew in faculty you knew in graduate school and, you know, have them spread the word to their networks that you're looking for somebody. Um, I think it's a, it's a better way to find postdocs than through advertising, because when you advertise, you get thousands of applications um, and most of them are not relevant to your research interests um, or, or are not qualified for the position. And so wading through all of those is very time consuming and frustrating. And um, so I, I think the right way to find postdocs is through networking, um, you know, taking advantage of your professional network. And, at, and as you grow in your career, and start publishing papers and get grants then, and start establishing a reputation, then uh, postdocs find you because they're excited about your work, excited about your research. Um, I found a lot of postdocs uh, locally, um, many, some, some in my lab have been spouses of people, faculty, for example, being recruited to the institution or, uh, you know, spouses who are, have jobs in the city where you live and are, are coming and looking for a position. And sometimes they'll contact a department chair or center director who sends out a broadcast email to their mailing lists. And so I've, I've definitely found uh, postdocs uh, that way. Um, so it takes, you know, it takes a little bit of work, um, you know, certainly being proactive and tapping into your network helps. Advertising, I don't think generally helps, um, but you know, people certainly do find postdocs that way, but it's a bit more work and, and a bit more hit or miss. Um, in terms of, you know, evaluating the quality of a postdoc, um, you know, I certainly look for productivity. Have they published papers? You know, have they been productive in their PhD? You know, letters of recommendation. And I would definitely recommend talking by phone with the advisor because often people will say things by phone that they won't put in writing for legal reasons. And so you can usually get a much more honest assessment of an individual's qualifications and strengths and limitations um, on a phone conversation. And that's true for any, any hire. Um, so those are those are some tips. Uh, you know, definitely interview the candidate. Have everybody in the lab meet with the candidate. If you don't have a lab yet, you know, invite some other professors. I've interviewed postdocs for junior faculty, um, so that's a nice thing to do to ask other professors to interview postdocs. And uh, those interviews are really important and um, can you know reveal some weaknesses or some personality issues that might not be a good fit for the lab, et cetera. Um, yeah, so I think those are my tips for postdocs and, and, um, in terms of taking graduate students, um, I have always 
taken virtually every PhD student that's wanted to join my lab. And I think there are probably only a few instances where I said no, but um, 90, 95% of the time I take any student that wants to join my lab, assuming I have funding for them, of course. Um, and that's just my strategy. You know, I'm an educator. Um, I just don't have the heart to turn students away. And uh, I believe everybody deserves a chance and an opportunity to prove themselves and step up. And, um, and I take mentoring students very seriously. Um, I have kicked a student out of my lab for not doing anything um, early in my career. I kicked a student out of my lab, um, but that's the, I think that's the only, that one time was the only time I've ever done that. And I've trained probably close to 20 postdocs at this point and more than 20 PhD students. I don't know, Marilyn, what are your thoughts about picking postdocs and taking graduate students and you know, what's your advice? Yeah, these are so important, especially for junior faculty just building your lab. The these people are the the core that gets you started. So these are hard decisions. Um, I would agree with you on the advertising. I have tried one time to advertise for postdoc uh, positions in the lab, and it was a total disaster. I got hundreds of applications, most of which were um, people who did immunohistochemistry and Western blots and Southern blots. And they were experts in uh, gene expression microarrays. And I was like, this is a, a bioinformatics job posting. There is not anything wet in the lab. Why would you apply to this? But people don't read and they don't look. So it was a tremendous amount of work for me to go through all of these CVs to even get down to a few that were at least you know, appropriate. And then even then the interviews were terrible. I mean, I did kind of Skype interviews, you know, that was what we used back in the day and then had them come. I had one or two on site and it just didn't go well. And so that is the only time I've ever posted an ad. Otherwise I've been using my scientific network of colleagues and then trying to um, to build that network to be larger. So I've tried um, connecting with more people on Twitter, starting to you know follow some people that I might not typically follow. I've been uh, volunteering to mentor students as part of summer research programs for undergrads in um, from schools that have a lot of underrepresented minorities in science, because I am aware, you know, there is this kind of self-fulfilling problem with the with relying on your network that means that the privileged continue to have that privilege and we don't find those students that don't have that same level of privilege where because their mentors don't have the network and so I'm really trying to be intentional about growing that network and trying to find more people but I'm also telling the people who I know like tell your friends tell the people in other labs like if they don't know me and then when people do reach out, I often give them the advice, tell me in the subject line of the email, how you know me, like, how are you getting to me? Because if I just get, I get so many emails and I'm sure you do too, that are like position in your lab. And I'm like, who is that? Like, do I even open the email? Um, if it says, you know, we met at this conference or I know your student so-and-so, I'm intrigued. 
And I always open those emails. So for those of you who are looking for postdocs, use the people who might know, you know, it, it doesn't have to be that you know them. It could be a friend of a friend of a friend, but get that person to open the email by using their network. Um, I also, I've done a lot of seeking out students at conferences to be potential postdocs. And I think I learned this from you. I remember you doing this years ago. Um, if I see students with, you know, interesting talks, I will go talk to them and I'll say, you know, how, when are you graduating? What are you doing after graduation? Or I'll go to the poster sessions. And if they have a great poster and it goes really well, I'll ask, you know, when are, do you want to, you know, move to wherever I am at the time um, to consider a postdoc? So um, it, I think that works really well because you're basically, I mean, it's so flattering for a graduate student um, to have a, a faculty member come up to them and like invite them to potentially come interview for a postdoc. So I think uh, that strategy I've seen work pretty well. Yeah, those are those are really, really good, good tips, Marilyn. Um, and I totally agree about, you know, if you're a graduate student and you're emailing a faculty member at another institution angling for a postdoc position, you, yeah, you you because we get tons and tons of emails from people looking for postdocs that are completely irrelevant to what we do. Like you said, people doing, you know, cell biology, experimental biology that have no qualifications to do an informatics postdoc with us and, and clearly no interest in what we're doing. You have to make that personal connection, but also do your homework, you know, read, read the read the person's papers and connect with them on an intellectual level. If you can get their attention, then you want to demonstrate to them that you're really interested and have read the papers and have ideas, and um, and that's that's going to impress uh, impress faculty. Yep. From the faculty side as well, I would say you can use your network of your peers to find their students who are finishing soon. So I have this happen a lot. Um, so as a new faculty member. I would connect with other faculty and say, hey, do you have anybody finishing soon? You know, I would find people who I respect and that I would, you know, love to have a person who trained in their lab to come do a postdoc with me. And so I would reach out to them and, and say, you know, is, is there anyone graduating that you could send my way for a postdoc? That has worked well as well. Um, as far as evaluating the postdocs, um, everything that you said is pretty much what I do. The one thing that I would add is that I have them meet with members of my lab, either one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. It kind of just depends on the size of the lab at the time. And I always have them go to lunch. Well, this is obviously pre-COVID when we can go to restaurants and be in groups. So let me preface that. But um, when we're not in a pandemic, I have them go to lunch with the lab members without me so that they can get into more of a relaxed situation and just interact with one another. And uh, this has proven very useful because we have identified a couple of people where your gut instinct is like, something's off with this person. Like on paper, they're very good. They seem nice enough. They gave a great talk, but there's just something that's unsettling. And then you take them on, or you have your lab members take them to lunch, and they find out that, you know, there are all sorts of scenarios. I don't even want to repeat some of them because I don't know who's going to listen to this. And in case I, I give a hint that calls out a particular candidate, I don't want to do that. But people behave in different ways when they're in a relaxed lunch setting 
And if you're about to commit to having someone in your group for several years, and they're going to be with your other students and postdocs, you really want to know that they fit in with the group and are not offensive to the group. They're not mean. They're not hateful. They don't use hateful language and things like that. Yeah, I I agree completely. That's I, I do that as well. And and I've had a couple instances where I really liked somebody and then the lab came back from lunch and was like, nope, nope, ain't going to happen. We're not going to, we don't want this person. <laughs> we yeah. don't like this person. And, and, you know, and, and you listen to them and say, okay, I, you know, you have to, you can't bring somebody into the lab that is, is going to be oil and water with, with the rest of the people that just doesn't work. Yeah. One bad apple can spoil the bunch. That's like such a cliche setting uh, phrase, but it's so, so true. And Part of the reason that it's important for the PI to not be there, just for those of you new PIs who maybe haven't done it this way, um, if you remember, you know, back in your childhood, and I'm now being reminded of this with my teenagers, there are people who have kind of two personas, the persona when they're in front of someone superior. So as a kid, when they're around an adult or a teacher or, you know, someone in a, in a leadership role, they have this very polished and well-mannered behavior. And then as soon as they're only around their peers, they become a different person. Their language changes, their mannerisms change, and they just become a jerk. And I see it in kids and I see it in adults. There are people who, as soon as the leadership leave the room, they change. And um, that's not, in my opinion, not the type of person that you want in your lab, representing your lab out in the world. Um, so to grad students, um, I, like you, I give everyone a chance, even if they have no background in bioinformatics, if they've only done bench work and when they get to my lab, it's the first time they've seen a command line screen, I welcome them into the lab. Uh, that was me when I started grad school, I had very little programming experience and I learned it all in graduate school. And so I think it's important to give everybody a chance. I let everyone rotate, um, I'm not sure I've ever turned anyone away that wanted to join. I, I can't think of any instances of that. Um, so I'm pretty welcoming. For the junior faculty who maybe are struggling to get students who want to do rotations or join the lab, depending on the institution you're at, if they do rotations or if they just, uh, just select labs before they come, my advice would be to take every opportunity to get in front of the students especially when you're just starting out. So if there are um, opportunities for poster sessions, you should absolutely be there. If they want faculty to show up at recruitment dinners or to um, come give a flash talk at a recruitment event or at a first year, you know, they're just starting the school year, you have to get your face in front of them. For senior faculty, there's word of mouth. There are student, senior students and postdocs in the lab. So the incoming students hear about the labs from the students in the labs. But when you're new, there is no word of mouth. No one, there's no one else there. And so it really is on you to get in front of them and, uh, and let them know the exciting work that you're doing. Um, last couple things. Uh, I also, I try to pair rotation students up with other students in the lab uh, so that they can um, get some direct insight into the, how they work and the quality of the work. And um, the last thing I would say in both cases, so the graduate students and the postdocs, uh, and I think Jason, you said this, that you ask the lab for feedback. I 
uh, I think it's really important that the people in the lab are on board with a, a new lab member and um, not in a like, you know, they don't have to be best friends. And I explained it to them, like, it, you're not trying to pick friends here. It's not people that you have to have dinner with um, or go to happy hour with, but is there anything about this person that would cause stress for you coming into work? Or if you were told you had to work on a project with them or sit next to them, you know, if that creates a visceral reaction, I need to know that before they come to the lab. And, um, and I've done that since the beginning. And so I feel like, you know, while my name is on the, the lab, it's our lab and it's our community within the lab. And so I don't feel like it's my decision to make solely. Um, I trust, I certainly trust my gut instinct and spidey sense if something seems off, but you know, it's great if you have other people that can tell you that too. You know, it's funny, Marilyn, as, as I let students pick their own projects, develop their own projects, I don't typically give them projects. That's not how I do things. And the reason I do that is because I think students work harder and are more motivated if they're working on something they want to work on rather than something I want to work on. And I've always thought that that was something that students really enjoyed. And, and, and it's funny because um, I heard from a student recently who said, you know, there are students who don't rotate in your lab because they're afraid that they're going to have to develop their own project, that you're not going to work with them to give them a project. So it turns out that some students are intimidated by my lab because of, of that uh, what I thought was, you know, a nice gesture for the students. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. So I do the same. I offer, pro, you know, especially with side projects, I'll say, like, I have this phenotype and we need to do a GWAS. Would anyone like to do it? And I'll see who wants to do it. Um, but then, yeah, for, for their main project, I very much have students uh, and postdocs develop their own project. I give them ideas. I'll like, whiteboard, you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do that, or you could ask this question, or you could take this method and do this. And I feel like I give them like a laundry list of things, but I have them choose like, you know, well, if they already have their own question, by all means, we go with that. But if not, I help them. But I agree. I thought that was a good thing because I, I know students, certainly when I was in graduate school, who were handed a project, you, here's our grant, you have aimed to, and they hated it. And yeah. most of them ended up quitting their PhD and didn't even finish because they weren't invested. It wasn't a question they cared about. Yeah, it's not their project. It's somebody else's project. And they're just the the lab tech doing doing the work. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. But anyway, it was funny to it was funny for me, me to hear that. But maybe, you know, maybe it's a, a natural screening tool, right? The people that end up joining my lab are the ones that are really motivated and have ideas and you know, maybe those are the students I want anyway. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I also work with students on to develop ideas. So I, I don't, it's not like it's forced, but anyway, it was funny. It is now time to wrap up the discussion for the day. Jason, any closing remarks? Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. Um, I, I think this has been a, a great, a great episode and, um, you know, I've thought a lot this summer about our discipline of informatics and how we've responded to the pandemic challenge. And, and maybe I've said this before, but it keeps coming, keeps coming back in my mind about how absolutely critically important biomedical informatics is to the COVID-19 response. Um, you know, all the data sharing initiatives that we've been in part of, all the analytics that goes into 
looking for patterns in COVID data and relating it to clinical endpoints. And, um, you know, it's, this is, I, I think this is a positive thing that's come out of the pandemic. There aren't many, but I think a positive thing is that it's really highlighted the value of informatics. And it's really the informaticians, and I would include statisticians in that as well, that are the stars of the show, uh, along with the immunologists um, and virologists, the stars of the show in, in responding to the pandemic. And it's I think it's very exciting for our field. I think... Um, you know, a lot of a lot of young people are probably going to be motivated to go into infectious disease research because of the pandemic, uh, which makes a lot of sense. But I, I hope a lot of people are motivated to go into biomedical informatics because it plays such a central role in responding to something like this. Um, uh, I would also balance that by saying I think the pandemic has also revealed some of the sore spots in informatics, some of the things that we thought we could do that we really can't do, or things that are more challenging when, when we're really put to the test, because we had to do things very quickly. We didn't have the luxury of taking two or three years to work out, you know, an ontology and a way to integrate all this data and a way to manage it and share it. And because that's typically, you know, we typically work on multi-year timescales and, and, in the, in, for COVID, we had several months to get our act together and make this work. And so it's it's an interesting duality. On one hand, we're the stars of the show, but you know, when you're the star of the show, the blemishes also come out. And but I think it's going to move our field forward in a in a in a very positive way. Marilyn, any closing thoughts? Yeah. As you were saying that, it actually, it changed what I was going to talk about for my closing thoughts. So I'm going to talk about the pandemic instead. Um, I think you're right. The For the field of informatics, it has really been a time to shine. Um, but I think I'm also seeing on, especially on Twitter, uh, various tweets about how challenging this time is for everyone as well. So because we can work remotely and we have full access to all of the data that we need, all of the computational resources, so very different from our wet lab colleagues who I think at most places, at least in the United States, they're back in the lab, but it's part-time, it's, you know, they're splitting shifts, they have to sign up for times and machines, and it's certainly not business as usual for wet labs. And so I think a lot of informaticians are carrying the weight of what can't be done on the, the wet lab side. And, and I don't think anybody said, I mean, certainly that didn't happen at Penn that anyone said, informatics, it's your job to make sure that the institution stays at the top of various rankings. But I think for those of us that do have some loyalty to our institution and certainly empathy for what our colleagues are going through, it, I certainly feel another level of pressure. You know, if if my friend down the hall can't get stuff done because of the pandemic situation and I can, man, I better pull the weight for both of us so that our institution and our department and our institute stay afloat and, you know, stay, uh, stay at the top of various lists. So with that comes just a lot of extra stress uh, and, and a lot of work. As you mentioned earlier, these Zoom calls, I mean, I, I had one. Today at 7 a.m. and I have one this evening at 5 p.m. And so it it goes kind of, you know, the candle burning both ends or, or whatever that phrase is. 
Um, and so I am definitely doing some research on like how to, how to not allow that to impact our, our mental and physical wellness, as well as our productivity. You know, what, what is, what is expected of us in terms of productivity right now? It, it's a little bit unclear. I think our usual metrics of success are different. And, you know, what does a successful week look like now? Uh, if I think back to what it looked like a year ago, it's so different. And um, that's actually the topic of the Calm podcast. The other podcast that I do, the topic this week is like, what is success right now anyway? And I, I find there are some weeks that if I can make it through the calls and eat dinner and sleep, like that was, that week was a win. You know, <laughs> if I got through that. If I get through the emails too, that's great. So um so I'm definitely going to be spending some time over um, this last part of the year and some of the holiday break, um, digging in a little bit more and trying to think of how can we do better for the members of our labs and the members of our departments um, so that so that we don't end up with major fatigue come early 2021. Because I, as I said earlier, I mean, I think a lot of people have been saying it's going to be a dark winter. Oh, we need to prepare for the dark winter. And I'm an optimist. I don't want to prepare for the dark winter. I want to figure out like, how do we make the winter as great as we can make it under the circumstances that we're in? And so I'm trying to figure that out and I will share it maybe on the next podcast. If I figure out any strategies, because uh, right now it, it, it does look, it looks like it's going to be a challenging winter. That is it for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. We hope you will be able to find the time to join us again. Feel free to get in touch with us for feedback or suggestions. You can find our contact info online. It is now officially Miller time here in Philadelphia. 